In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. I want to begin this morning uh, with, by acknowledging something that is utterly obvious, and that is that given where our eyes are positioned in our bodies, none of us can see all of ourselves all by ourselves. Unless I have something outside of myself that reflects back to me, I'm guessing that I can only see uh, about 60% of my anatomy. That truth first came home to me uh, in an article I read uh, not long ago about a soldier uh, in Vietnam. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when a firebomb exploded right in front of him. And as a result, uh, the, the skin on his face literally melted away. Somehow he was able to survive this. He was flown back to the States, um, and uh, his face was terribly disfigured. But the doctors at the Veterans Hospital told him that if he was willing to go through a long process of skin grafting, there was a good chance that his countenance could be restored. Well, he thought about it for a while and decided that some chance was better than none. So he went through several months of these procedures. It was tedious. It was painful. But at the end of that time came the last skin graft. For two weeks, his face was tightly wrapped in the bandages. And then came the moment when the bandages were finally taken off. The soldier reached up with his hands. He could tell that the scar tissue was gone. But he said it was not until his wife leaned over his bed and kissed him, tears filling her eyes, her face brimming with joy, that he realized that the doctor's promises had come true. But he needed somebody else to reflect that to him. I repeat, given where our eyes are located, we can only see so much. And of course, what is true of us physically is even more true of us spiritually. We never get in touch with the deepest ministries, mysteries of who we are. We never get in touch fully with our gifts and how to use them unless someone outside us reflects those back to us. And I see that truth embedded in the gospel story that Lynn has just read for us. You know that Jesus, just like us, grew up in a family and in a culture that had certain expectations for him. Among those was that he would, father, he would follow his father into a, a career as a carpenter. But even as he apprenticed, there was this sense that there was something else out there uh, for him. And it was that searching uh, in his late 20s, early 30s that led him to the banks of the Jordan River where his cousin John was baptizing. And as Jesus was baptized, his calling was confirmed in a voice that somehow came to him. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
Well, it was not long after that that Jesus began to go into the neighboring towns, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was an incredible time. Lame people began to walk. Blind people began to see. Uh, Jesus was a really hot item up there in the, in the Galilee. But you know as well as I do that people have short attention spans. Today's headlines become back page yesterday's news. The political leaders grew weary of him. People had long expected that the Messiah was going to be like the great hero David, a, a conquering king. And yet Jesus was feeling himself led in a different direction. He would touch people with his with his love, with his self-giving, sacrificial love. And it's at this point, with change and perhaps some self-doubt looming, that Jesus retreats with his disciples to a little place called Caesarea Philippi. He begins by saying to them, you know, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples are quick to answer, uh, Jesus, you've made a, a big impression on people. Some are saying that you're just like your cousin John. Um, others are saying you're more like the, the prophet Elijah, reincarnated. Uh, people are impressed, Jesus. But then he takes the conversation in a different direction. He turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? The question that really every one of us has to answer at some point when what others think is really not enough anymore. Barbara Brown Taylor says that if the Gospels had been written with stage directions, at this point in the margins it would read, awkward silence comes over the disciples. They begin to look at the back of their hands. They begin to shift awkwardly from one foot to the next. But then Simon Peter, good old impetuous Peter, um, he breaks that silence. He's always the first one out of the blocks. I'll tell you who I think you are, Jesus. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the son of the living God. And even though it is clear that Peter doesn't understand exactly what that response entails, it does reconfirm for Jesus the calling that he first heard on the banks of the Jordan. You see, both physically and spiritually, given the way we are put together, none of us can know all about ourselves, all by ourselves. And if that is true of Jesus and true of us, then there are several things that follow from that. First of all, we need each other to see fully into the mystery of who we are and who we have it in us to become. That's certainly true of me. I, I was never one of those people who knew from the earliest days what I wanted to do with my life. Certainly didn't know I wanted to be a minister. There are probably still some Sunday school teachers back in New York who are befuddled by the fact that that's the way it turned out. And yet I do remember, for example, uh, the high school friend of mine who one day said, 
you know, Pete, it's not like I don't have other friends, but somehow when I want to talk things over, you're the one who I look for. I do remember the college profs. Um, I was in a time of my life where I was really intrigued by all of these other religions, but I wasn't committed in any way. I didn't go to church during those years, and yet they were the ones who said, you know, you should really consider seminary. And I imagine that along the way, there have been people for you, people who have been mirrors and who reflected things back. We need each other to reflect back the deepest truths about ourselves. And if that is true of us individually, surely it is true of us as a people. We need others to help us to see ourselves for who we are and who we have it in us to become. In the midst of all of this recent racial unrest here in our country, I think that's one of the valuable takeaways. I was listening just a few weeks ago to a stand-up comedian, a TV personality, Aziz Ansari, who, if you don't know, is actually Indian. And right in the middle of his stand-up routine, one line jumped out at me. He said, you white folks don't think that something is racist until you recognize it as racist. Two thoughts immediately came to mind. First of all, that is as true as the nose on my face, which incidentally I can't see all by myself. But secondly, I thought, that is an inherently racist assumption, that, that I as a white man can see the whole picture, that I have a corner on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so really one of the first things as a white man that I can do in steps towards racial reconciliation is to learn to listen to people of color, painful as that may be, because they may be able to show me things that, in Jesus' words, are now hid from my eyes. So we need to learn to listen. And then finally, we need to reflect back to others. We need to become mirrors for them as well. Fred Craddock, uh, one of the great preachers of our time, tells a story, a true story, about a time in his life when he was really exhausted. It was the end of a spring term. He had been teaching and preaching. And so that spring, he and his wife decided to take a little pilgrimage back to their native state of Tennessee. And they were sitting in a little restaurant in Gatlinburg. Fred says he noticed an older, white-haired gentleman who was making his way from one table to the next, just talking uh, with the patrons. I hope he doesn't intrude his way into our time together, he thought. Uh, the last thing I need is to talk to another stranger. But sure enough, here he came. The gentleman introduced himself. He said, where are you folks from? And they told him. He said, well, well what do you do? And Fred thought he would throw him off the scent. He said, well, I teach homiletics, which, of course, is just a fancy word for preaching. 
But the man knew better. He said, oh, you're a preacher, are you? Well, I've got a preacher's story to tell you. And with that, he pulled up a chair at their table. Fred thought to himself, oh, my God, the last thing I need is another preacher story. But then the man began. He said, I grew up not far from here, up there in those hills. My mother wasn't married when I was born, and the same shame that fell on her also fell on me. He said, I remember the first day I went to school, my classmates began to use the B word. It had a terrible sting to it, so much so that many a day I took my lunch out into the woods and ate by myself. But he said even worse was going to town with my mother on a Saturday afternoon, and we would be walking down the street, and I would see people put their hands over their mouths, but I could still hear them whisper, I wonder whose boy he is. He said, my family didn't go to church. We were afraid if we went, somebody would say, what are people like you doing in a place like this? But he said, when I was 13, a new preacher came to that little mountain church. I happened to hear him speak at a school assembly, and I was so attracted to his wisdom and to his warmth. And so he said, I began to slip into church on Sunday mornings after the worship had started. I would sit in the back row and I would be very careful to get out before anybody would recognize me. But he said, one Sunday, I got so caught up in that preacher's words. By the time I knew it, he had given the benediction and this old lady had queued up in the line so that I couldn't get out. There I was, an unholy in the Holy of Holies. I was just standing there, shifting from one foot to the other, when I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned, and lo and behold, it was the old preacher himself. And then he said he asked me the question that had been the curse my whole life. He said to me, Whose boy are you, son? Who's your daddy? And the white-haired man said, I just didn't know what to say. I had never known the answer to that question. He said, as I stood there, tongue-tied, embarrassed, suddenly a smile came over that old preacher's face. He said, wait a minute. You don't have to tell me. Of course, I know. God is your daddy. You are the son of the Most High. He says, son, you've got a great heritage. I want you to go out there and claim it. He said, those two lines, God is your daddy. You are the son of the Most High, were the kindest and the most affirming words that had ever been spoken to me. They sunk deep in my heart, literally changed my life. Well, at this point, even Fred was enthralled. He said, what did you say your name was? The man said, my name's Ben Hooper. And at that point, Fred remembered that years before, his own grandfather had told him that not once but twice, 
the people of Tennessee had gone to the polls and elected an illegitimate as their governor. His name was Ben Hooper. Do you see the power of mirroring back to someone what others may not see in themselves? God has given us that power and the privilege of reflecting the deepest of all truths to one another. Given the way we are put together, physically and spiritually, we simply cannot see all of ourselves all by ourselves. That's why we need each other. Amen.